If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the end of Luke chapter 1. This morning we will bring this wonderful but lengthy chapter to a close. When I began to think about what I would preach for Reformation Sunday, which is what today marks, my mind went to a number of texts that I I could possibly preach to maybe just take a slight break away from our exposition of Luke. Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, Isaiah chapter 9, which I thought providentially the Lord saw fit because it's actually quoted in Zechariah's song. Uh, But a number of texts brought before me, Galatians 3 and so many others, that came to mind as I thought of what would I preach for the theme of of this day in light of the truths profound and and renewed within the Reformation. But as I began to look at Zechariah's song and and, and thinking through it, I thought in Lord in God's providence, um, He would have us right here this morning. Because at the end of the day, the Reformation was primarily centered on one important thing: the gospel. The gospel. How can man be made right with God? And that's the most important question in the world. How can sinners be made right with God? The answer is the glories of the gospel found in Christ alone, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And as I began to think through that, I thought, well, there's no better place for us to be than Zechariah's song. Because Zechariah's song is a song of the gospel. It is a song of the glory of God. It is a song of a God who saves, who redeems, who rescues. It's a song of the gospel. So I think it's fitting that we stay right here where we are in our preaching this morning. Today we see the culmination of John's birth narrative with Zechariah, his father, blessing God. Blessed be the Lord. And what's amazing is, as we look to this song of blessing, which that's why we call it the Benedictus. It's a song of blessing. A benediction is a blessing. Blessed be the Lord. He sings the song of blessing God. As you would think that the obvious content of this song would be... Man, Lord, you gave me a son. That's so wonderful. Thank you, Lord. You are so blessed that you would give us this child. And that has nothing to do with this song. Rather, as Zechariah holds this newborn baby, this child that was given to him through a wife that was barren, all that he can think about, all that he can see is the glories of what this child points to. And that is another son that's about to come. A greater son. That what this child represents is the fulfillment and the, as the forerunner of the Messiah who is going to come to redeem His people. It's a picture that God is acting and that God is about to rescue. So He sings, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Zacharias had quite the story in chapter 1. From performing temple service and there being the first one that God would speak to through an angelic messenger after 400 years of silence. God tells him of how he is going to give him a, a child though his wife is barren. 
And this child will be the forerunner of the Most High. That he will go before the Lord. In other words, this is going to usher in the Messianic age. His son will be the last Old Testament prophet. The bridge between the covenants. And Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For my wife and I are old. He has literally an angel standing before him. And yet doubt fills his heart. So because of his doubt, Zechariah was struck silent. He was unable to speak because he struggled with doubt. For several months, he would remain in that silence. And then the day would come and his child was born. And there was a big dispute over it, right? Who shall it be? They, they wanted to call him Zechariah. It's pretty normal. You would name someone after their father. You'd have Zechariah the 15th. I mean, you just keep going down the line. So that's what everyone thinks it should be. They, tell, they ask Elizabeth, what will he name her? She says his name will be John. Whoa, we don't have any Johns in this family. What do you mean, John? And then we read this in verse 62 through 64. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And today, we get to see the substance of that blessing. So turn your eyes, verse 67, through the end of the chapter. We see this beautiful Benedictus, this song of Zechariah. We read, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from, a, visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for nine months, Zechariah has had to sit in silence. I believe both his own silence and the silence of others. Now, I know there's a lot of debate on this, but, but I do believe that, that Zechariah was struck in biblical terms fully dumb, meaning that he was both deaf and mute. And, and I think that is the reason why they had to make signs uh, for him to ask whether or not uh, what the name of John should be. So, so I take the, the view that he was struck both mute and deaf in this judgment, meaning that he's been sitting in total silence for nine months. And I, and I can only imagine what that was like. For the first few months, I can imagine him silently just beating himself up. Gosh, you're an idiot. Why would you not believe why would you doubt? You had an angel standing before you. What were you thinking? You were literally in the Holy of Holies. And you have doubt. 
shame, guilt, regret. I can imagine that was very much what was breaking the silence of his mind. And when your mind is stuck in those places, silence is a hell. Silence is a hell when it's filled with nothing but shame, guilt, and regret. But over time, Elizabeth's stomach would begin to grow. And perhaps those negative thoughts began to be replaced with thoughts of hope and joy. As Zechariah remembered the promise of who this child would be and, and what he represented. And then, six months into the silence, a young woman visits his house. Elizabeth's cousin, a young woman named Mary, to visit and stay for three months. And during that time, likely through means of writing, she was able to communicate to Elizabeth and Zechariah the news that she had received about the child that she now carried. Literally, the Messiah himself. The King of glory, growing in her womb. Now surely, this drove Zechariah, this old priest, to deep study and reflection. As he would go to the words and and begin to study all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah to come, all of the prophecies regarding the nature and the task of what his child would be required to do as the forerunner. And as he would have permeated over the scriptures and spent time in silent meditation and prayer, I can imagine that his silence went from being a place of hell to a place of peace. When your mind and when you use your silence to reflect on the Lord and his glories found in his word, it will turn your silence into a sanctuary. And that time of silent reflection and study moved Zachariah's heart and it overwhelmed him. His mind filled with thoughts of glory and praise of the Messiah to come of the nature of his child who would be the last Old Testament prophet ushering in the new covenant age with the Messiah. The glories of reality of God coming to rescue his people, to come and be the good shepherd, swelled up in him. And the moment the cork was pulled, the silence was released. That silent sanctuary became a temple of praise. It became a temple of praise. Immediately after he wrote on that tablet, and I think in probably very big letters, his name is John. God is gracious. His mouth was opened. The Holy Spirit fills him, we are told. And that's a big thing, right? Luke's making this clear over and over again. What is the driving agent of worship? It's the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no power in worship. There's no substance in worship. The Holy Spirit is the driver of worship here. And so he, he, just like he opened up Elizabeth's mouth and Mary's mouth, now he opens up Zachariah's mouth and he pours out into songs. And this is so important to realize as we are really starting a very early Advent season this year with going through the opening chapters of Luke. That when you look at Luke's gospel, the birth of Jesus is surrounded by song, 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 song. No wonder we sing at Christmas time. 
But don't lose sight of where the caroling spirit comes from. It doesn't come from yuletides and logs. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the fact that the Son of God came to rescue sinners. And there's nothing else in this world more delightful to sing about than the fact that Christ came. That Jesus came. Some of the most important songs that we would ever hear about are centered around the birth of Jesus. And when you look at Zechariah's song, there is one permeating theme of it. God has come in the Messiah to rescue His people. It is a song of rescue. A song of salvation. A song of deliverance. And this is precisely the main point of our message today. Here's our main point. In Jesus... God has faithfully come to rescue His people so that they can live lives of an ending worship for His glory. That's what this song is all about. In Jesus, God has come to rescue His people so that we can live lives of an ending worship to His glory. And so as we move through the text a little more slowly this morning, we're going to sing with Zechariah. I'm not going to make you sing. But I'm going to make you speak today. So you get to stay awake. With each point this morning, we're going to read it together. We're going to sing a Benedictus this morning. As we recite exactly the glories of what Christ has came to do for us. What God has come to do for us in Jesus. So here's our first point this morning. Let's say it together. Blessed be the Lord who came to redeem his people. Blessed be the Lord who came to redeem His people. That is the first point. We see this in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Man, that's wonderful news. Zechariah makes very clear in this opening that there's no doubt anymore in his heart. Notice, he doesn't speak in future tense. God will visit His people. God is going to redeem them. He speaks of it as an already established reality. Why? Because when God speaks, it's as sure as good. When God speaks, it is as sure as good. It will happen. There's no doubt. There's no guarantee. It's as good as done when God speaks. God has spoke. And he has seen the reality of it in his son, in in that young virgin Mary whose stomach grew. He saw it, that when God speaks, it's as good as done. So this morning when you see the word of God, this is why we believe in sola scriptura. Because when God speaks, it's as good as done. This is our authority. And Zechariah knew it and he sings it as such. And Zechariah recognizes that redemption can only come from God. It can only come from him. And in order for him to redeem his people, he has to come down in order to lift us up. He has to come. And so that's why he says, right, that he has visited his people. Now, for centuries, the Jewish people had languished under the conviction that God had withdrawn himself. There had been no prophets, no speaking for 400 years. It had been absolutely silent. God, it seemed to be, was gone. Nothing but darkness and silence. 
And all the godly in Israel were waiting the visitation of God, waiting the day that he would come, just like he promised Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, that he would come to be the good shepherd of Israel. They waited for his coming. We see this in Zechariah. We will, we will be told of another old man, Simeon, who said that he had been longing for the consolation of Israel to come. Or the prayerful Anna, who said that she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. The faithful of Israel were longing and waiting for what? For the day God would come to rescue. Zechariah's song declares that he knew that God had come in the child that was now growing in Mary's womb. And that through her, that child was going to redeem his people. Now, it's important to understand that Zechariah, like so many at this time, would have had a very narrow view of what that redemption entailed. For, for Zechariah, this redemption would have been nationalistic. Jesus was going to come on a white horse to conquer, run out the Romans, set up a physical kingdom. It was just going to be a greater heyday than Solomon imagined. That's what he thought. This was very nationalistic. And so when he sees redemption, he sees a very nationalistic redemption where there might be some nations that are going to come in, uh, but they will only do so to basically bow to the Messiah as the king of the world, not as a redeemer, not as a cosmic redemption. And in other words, these Jews at this time, based upon their understanding of the prophecies, had a very narrow and nationalistic view of what Jesus was going to come and do for his people. And so much of Jesus' ministry is spent with these back and forth of trying to expand their mind to a greater redemption that he's come to bring. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said, that God said to Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you would merely redeem the tribes of Israel. Notice, he doesn't say that's a bad thing. He said it's too small. It's too light. If you think that it's just a nationalistic redemption, you missed it. It's cosmic. It's worldwide. God has come to restore and renew the entirety of creation in Jesus Christ. And so... We need to understand that, yes, there would be physical judgments that would be brought down by the Messiah. And much of that will come in the second advent, as we will see, that there is such a small scope here. And so what Zechariah sings of, we now, on this side of redemptive history, of Revelation history, can sing all the more greater because we know the, redeemer, the redemption that Jesus brought was so much greater than anything that Zechariah could even imagine. This redemption would be a redemption of souls out from a greater oppression that any foreign nation could cause. This would be a redemption from the oppression of Satan, sin, and death. Our greatest enemies. The enemies that no matter whether you live in Palestine or Middle East or you live in Florida or Alaska or Korea or whatever, every single human being who's ever been born lives and is born underneath that oppression. Sin, Satan, and death. And every single human being needs to be rescued from it. And every single human being cannot be rescued on their own merits. They only just make it worse. Our state, our condition, 
is like being in quicksand. The more you try to work your way out of it, the deeper you sink. You have to have someone outside of it pull you from it in order to be rescued. And that's what God came to do. Because all of humanity is in the quicksand. We're all as good as dead. And Christ reaches in and snatches us out. That's how it has to happen. And that's exactly what he came to do. God had come in the Messiah not to lead his people into a mere strip of land, but to the glories of eternal life in the presence of God forever. And that word redeemed there is the word latrosin. It means he ransomed his people. He's come to ransom. Now, what does a ransom require? It requires a cost. Meaning, in order for him to redeem, there will be a cost required. And what would be that cost? The cost of himself. God, in order to rescue his people, would do so at the cost of his only begotten son. And this is why Jesus said in John 10, or excuse me, Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He paid the cost. He paid the debt that you had in order to rescue you from bondage. To rescue you from captivity. He came to redeem us by His blood. This warrior came not to slay, but to save. He came And the only person that would have to die in order for him to rescue his people would be himself. When every single one of us deserved the broad broad edge of his sword. The broad edge of his judgment. And yet for his people, he takes the sword himself. So that you could live. He came to die So that you and I could live. Blessed be the Lord. Secondly. Together. Blessed be the Lord. Who saved us from our enemies. Blessed be the Lord. Who saved us from our enemies. Verse 69 through 71. And has raised us up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from uh, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those who hate us. Here, Zechariah now explains how he will redeem his people, how he's going to do it. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now, in this statement, Zechariah is making very clear he's not talking about his own son. He's not in the house of David. He's clearly talking about the son that Mary now carries. He is showing this is clearly a messianic song. Here he tells of how the Davidic Messiah, he he who was foretold of in all of the prophets, the law and the prophets, will come to liberate his people once and for all from the greatest enemies of all. Here, 
Jesus is referred to as a horn of salvation. In Micah chapter 4, verse 13, God says to Jerusalem, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. Now, the horn is a, is a picture of strength, of power, of might, of victory. Now, in this age that they were living in, a strong oxen, a mighty beast with horns, was a picture of an unstoppable force. And we have tanks and things like that today. But we still get glimpses of the mighty force that can come from a strong oxen. Anybody watch the running of the bulls? Yeah. Okay? Nothing like stupidity on television. We love watching it. But I'll tell you what, they do some damage. Anyone who's ever been to a rodeo has seen the strength of a bull. You let one of those go free in a small area, you're done for. It's a picture of an unstoppable force. And that's precisely what the Messiah is. He is an unstoppable force. Now the Messiah is often referred to as a horn, usually as the horn of God's anointed. Uh, we see that in Hannah's song that we saw uh, a few weeks ago. We see it also in Psalm 132, where the Messiah is referred to as the horn of the anointed. But there are only two times in the Old Testament where the horn of salvation is referred to. And both times are sung by David, and both times are directly in reference to God alone. God is the horn of salvation. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2-4, through four, David sings, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And then he, he reflects on this song again in Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verse 2 through 3, David sings, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. In God, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So these two times, a reflection of the same song are sung from David to God. And God alone is referred to as the horn of salvation. David says two things about the Lord in those songs. One, that the Lord is his defense. He's my rock, my shield, my fortress. But the Lord is also his offense. He is the horn of salvation. And that's so important because it's really important for us to understand that the gospel and the glories of Jesus Christ for us in the church is both our defense, Christ is who secures us, Christ is who protects us, Christ is who seals us, Christ is who defends us, but Jesus is also our offense. It is the message of Christ that advances the kingdom of God and nothing else. So any other means to try to advance the kingdom of God apart from the message of Christ is foolish and vain. And it won't go anywhere. So Christ is our offense, He's our rock, our, our fortress, our shield, and He is also our, scheme, our defense and our offense. He is our horn of salvation, the message which we carry forward. And if 
Zechariah is singing of this son to come, is singing of this Messiah as the horn of salvation. And notice he says God's the one raising him up. Then who must this Messiah also be? God. God in the flesh. To to use this title for anyone other than God would be blasphemy. But it's not. Why? Because Christ is God incarnate. God in the flesh. In other words, in Jesus, God has truly visited us. The one who formed heaven and earth, the one who formed all creation, has entered into it and walked upon the very ground he spoke into existence. Living underneath the, 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 the heavens which he spoke into being. Filling the warmth and light of the celestial bodies he hung into being. God has visited us in Jesus. And he has come to redeem us and to be our horn of salvation to destroy our enemies. But contrary to what Zechariah would have thought at this time, this was not Romans. That Jesus would come to save us from. Romans, political enemies, people, flesh and blood. That's got nothing to do with this. The salvation that Jesus came was far greater. The enemies that he destroyed were far greater than anything flesh and blood can do. No, he came to save us from our greatest enemies. The greatest enemies that come against every human being that has ever walked on the planet. Sin and Satan. And what does... The New Testament tells us about what Christ came to do. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He destroyed the devil. Destroyed the works of them. Cast down the accuser. Therefore, if you're in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's destroyed the accuser. There is no more accusation against you in Christ because one, the accuser is destroyed and two, the substance of the accusation is destroyed, namely sin. Hebrews 9.26 Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. This is what our great horn of salvation has come to destroy the works of the Satan and to destroy the effects of sin for those who trust in him. Fear and guilt are the two greatest spoilers in life. And they both have been taken away because Jesus has dealt with the root causes, Satan and sin. And he's destroyed them both in his first coming and will bring them fully and finally to their end in his second coming. Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the horn of salvation we have. You see, there's so much Exodus language that is used here in Zechariah's song. The visitation is a reflection of Exodus 6.6 and God leading His people out. And that's so important because what the Exodus was for Israel was a foreshadow of a greater Exodus to come. 
Not outside of an empire. Not outside of a, a nation into a wilderness or into a little piece of land here on earth. But an exodus from a sinful, fallen world into a brand new creation where you will live forever in the glory of God. That's the exodus He's brought. That's the salvation He has came to bring. That is the horn of salvation who is unstoppable and has carried us from death and darkness into the glories of eternal life for everyone who believes in Him. What a Savior we have in Jesus. What a Savior we have. Jesus is the horn of salvation that has come and for everyone who believes upon Him, He has perfectly rescued you from your greatest enemy, sin and Satan, to liberate you from bondage and to give you freedom in Him forever. What a Savior. And and His redemption and salvation flow from His faithfulness. And that's where we get the third point. Together again. Blessed be the Lord who is faithful to fulfill all His promises. Do you believe that? He is faithful to fulfill all His promises. Not just the easy ones. Not just a few of them. He's not bad in 800. He's perfect. He will be faithful to fulfill all His promises. Here, Zechariah brings God's mercy and His covenant remembers together. Verse 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Right. So he's, t- he's going to move in here to talk about how they were delivered. But he goes back to the mercy of God in preparing the people by declaring this truth, this promise to the fathers to Abraham and to all of the patriarchs of what he would come to do in a greater offspring, a future offspring to come by which he would bless all the nations. Zechariah's name means God remembers. That's a key part of the song. God has remembered. God gave promises to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophets, to David, that he would come bless cleanse and restore those who would bow down to Him. All of those covenants of the Old Testament were covenants that were shadows of greater things to come. And through each covenant, from Abraham to Moses, through clarity from the prophets to the Davidic covenant, what God was doing with that shadow was making its silhouette clearer and clearer and clearer. The substance was never given in the Old Covenant. Only the shadow. Which is why Jeremiah says this new covenant is going to be totally different than anything before. Not a new administration, but a new substance entirely. Because it is the substance. And as those shadows gave Israel a greater silhouette of this Messiah to come, Christ would step right into it. And that's the picture here. God has given promises to Israel to wait, to be ready, to hold fast, that He would come.
come to redeem them. That He would send a greater prophet than Moses. That He would send a suffering servant to redeem and to ransom His people. That He would come send a greater Davidic son who would establish a kingdom that would never be moved and never be shaken. God had given them those promises and now they were coming to their fulfillment in this Son, Jesus. That little baby that was growing in Mary's womb was the exclamation point of God's faithfulness. And that's why Paul would say of Christ that in Him, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They are yes Fulfilled, They are amen. Celebration. Hallelujah. Let it be in Christ. Yes, and let it be in Christ. So when your mind seeks to throw shade on the faithfulness of God, you turn your eyes to Jesus. When it feels as if, man, is it all falling apart? Will God be faithful to keep me? Will he return in faithfulness? Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. And you will see the fullness of God's faithfulness. God is not a man that he should lie. He is faithful to fulfill every word that he's spoken. That's why it doesn't return void. Because it cannot return void. He's faithful to fulfill every word. God's faithfulness is everywhere around Zechariah right now. I mean, it's just everywhere. He sees it in his child. He sees it in Mary, who's growing the Messiah inside of her. God's faithfulness is everywhere. He's seen an angel come and deliver the truth. God's faithfulness is so permeating through his life. So how can he not sing about it? When God's faithfulness is so abundantly around you, how can you not just sing, great is thy faithfulness? God, you're so faithful and so good when it's so abundantly around you. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that that's one of the reasons why the church is called to to regularly gather together. Because every time we gather as a body of Christ, we surround ourselves with testimonies of God's faithfulness. We right now are in a room full of broken, messed up, backslidden people who in spite of our shortcomings and failures are little by little being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Why? Because God's faithful. Man, we are broken people. And I'm the chief of them. The reason that I stand before you, the reason that any one of us are in this room this morning, is because God's faithful. He is faithful. And He is faithful to save you, and He is faithful to keep you, beloved saint. And this is the words of this song. He is faithful to fulfill every promise. If He has placed you in His Son, if you have become His true child by faith, God will never let you go. Do you believe that today? Please take that here. If you are in Christ today, God will never let you go. The winds may blow. 
The storms may come, but you will safely remain anchored in the harbor of salvation if you're in Christ. Because He's faithful. Not because you're faithful, because He's faithful. And He'll produce in you faithfulness because He's faithful. Softly and tenderly, as a good shepherd, Christ carries you into eternal fields of glory where you will rest with Him forever. Because he's faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning in thee. Thank God. Blessed be the Lord, whose faithfulness never changes, even though you and I do day after day. When you are surrounded by testimonies of his faithfulness, and you yourself are a testimony of His faithfulness, how can you not worship Him? How can you not take the second chance He's given you and devote the entirety of who you are to Him? And you may say, well, Blake, how can I do that? I'm nobody. I've got nothing to offer. Well, take heart at the next chord of Zechariah's song. Together, we sing... Blessed be the Lord who has empowered us to live faithfully for Him. Verse 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. This is the so what of the Lord's salvation. So we know that He saved us. He's redeemed us. He's carried us. He's liberated us. We've been taken from bondage. Removed from our enemies. Saved because of His wonderful faithfulness. So what? Here it is. This is so important. Because Zacharias Benedictus declares to us that God did not only save His people from something, but for something. You weren't just saved from something. You were saved for something. And I think in modern evangelicalism, this is where we've dropped the ball. We only see salvation as a one-sided thing. Well, God saved me from my sin. Praise the Lord, I'm not going to hell. And that's it. That's it. That's where the buck stops. God saved me from judgment. Amen, hallelujah, go home. You don't even need to come back. We stop on the one side of the coin and never look at the back side. And in doing so, we rob God of a whole lot of glory found in His salvation. He saved us from sin, Satan, and judgment. Amen! But He saved us from something for something. He saved us from those enemies he saved us from judgment. He saved us from death for a life of faithful service to Him, fearless discipleship, and holy and righteous living. You were not just saved from something. You were saved for something. And praise be to God that He removes the stumbling blocks and empowers us by His Spirit so that you can do those things. That's what he meant in the new covenant when he said, I will write my law on your hearts. I will put my word in you. Not so that you're looking at an external standard going, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing. 
But so that in you, the Holy Spirit can drive you to faithful, transformative living to actually live in faithful accordance to the glory of God. He did that for you. Why? Because he's faithful. Yes, this morning, brothers and sisters, I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're struggling with. Come to Jesus as you are. But know this. He will not leave you there. You can come as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He says that we might serve him without fear. You know what creates fear? Lack of security. But notice where this falls in the song. It falls in the song after we've read of God's redemption, God's salvation, God's faithfulness. In other words, obedience flows from his graciousness. We don't do and then God says, okay, now I'll act. We do because God acted. Law flows from grace. Notice even in Exodus 20 when God gives the Ten Commandments, how does he begin? I'm the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. In other words, grace precedes law. Because you can't do anything apart from God's redemption, God's salvation, God's empowerment. What did God do? Why did ultimately God take them into the wilderness? What did he tell Moses? So that my people can worship me. What God does in salvation is he removes every hindrance so that his people can be a people of worship. And that's the great problem with Israel. Is they got into the wilderness. And whether than worshiping God, they grumbled, they complained. There was no life for God's glory. They just simply lived in the reality that we're not in Egypt anymore. And there's a whole lot of Christians living there. We're not in Egypt anymore, but nothing about my life's changed other than the fact that I'm just wandering in a world without hell. There's no life for His glory. There's no holiness. There's no righteousness of living. Because all we ever cared about was getting out of Egypt, not getting into God. All we ever cared about was getting out of Egypt and not getting into God. All we ever cared about was getting out of hell and not getting into Christ. But that's missing exactly what his salvation did for us. You were saved from something for something. And when you are brought into the freedom that is found in Christ alone, all the fear melts away. When you have the knowledge that frees and empowers you to live in faithful service to the Lord, you'll do so no matter what the cost. Zephaniah chapter 3 talked about this. Zephaniah 3.15, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. And that fearless service is marked by holiness and righteousness. Holiness is when your life is distinguishable from the world. Right? That's holiness. And righteousness is when your life is directed towards the glory of God. So, a life that is distinguishable from the world, holiness, and directed towards the glory of God, righteousness. 
That's what your life should be. Separate from the world, directed towards the glory of God. Holy and righteous. That whether you eat or drink, do so unto the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Grace is pardon and power. He saves you from something for something. Titus 2, 13 and 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. See it in there? You were saved from all lawlessness. Purified people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You were saved from something for something. Is that us, church? Or have we been merely reaping the benefits of being saved from something while never embracing the reality that we were saved for something? Let's go live faithfully for the glory of God, separated from the world, that we might be bright lights in a broken world, that Christ's light might shine through us. For we were saved from judgment for glory. Lastly, and we'll pick it up here quickly, finally together. Blessed be the Lord who rescued us from death and darkness and guided us to peace. Verse 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here, now that rather than singing just out loud in general, Zechariah specifically turns to sing over his brand new baby boy. He now sings over his son. He sings over his son the realities of who he will be in his relationship to Christ. He will be the prophet of the Most High, the last Old Testament prophet in history. He will be one of those who goes before the Lord to prepare the people and to give knowledge to them of the salvation found in the Messiah. From the moment he was born, John had a father who was singing praise over him, directing his purposes towards the Lord and proclaiming to him the glories of what's found in Jesus. Oh, fathers and future fathers. I hope that that will be true of our children. That they also will grow up hearing dads singing over them, directing their purposes towards the Lord and of the glories found alone in Jesus. Oh, I pray that will be true of us fathers, future fathers, grandfathers. Will they hear us singing songs of praise over them, directing them to Jesus and the glories found in him? I sure hope so. And look at what these glories are. Zechariah says that because of the tender mercy of God, the Lord has come with forgiveness of sins. He goes on to quote Malachi 4.2, which says that this child to come, he will be like a sunrise that brings healing with its wings. Oh, what healing was found in Jesus. And then he quotes Isaiah 9-2 about how the Messiah will bring light to those who sit in darkness and are in the shadow of death. 
That He takes us from death and darkness and guides us to paths of peace. You know, I almost get like a Psalm 23 vibe there. The Lord is my shepherd. But there's a reason why this song ended with Isaiah 9-2. Because that sunrise was on the horizon. The light was just around the, on the corner for us on the very next page. The light of the Messiah that was about to be born. And how does Isaiah 9-2 culminate? Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus came to take his people from darkness and he would never let his people go back to it. That was true then, and it was true in the Reformation. That's why the motto of the Reformation is post-tenebrous post looks, after darkness, light. Why? God will never let his people stay in darkness. He will continue to guide them to the light of Christ, a light that is found revealed in his word, that leads us into paths of peace where the shepherd will care for us forever. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. The reason why he can lead us and guide us to peace is because he is the peace. And what's so wonderful about that is that means that our journey in Christ isn't just characterized by the fact that one day we will come to peace but the fact that every step of the journey, we get to have his peace along the way. I will give you my peace, not as the world gives do I give, but you will have my peace. That's what Jesus has brought. Blessed be the Lord. The text ends with a picture of God faithfully preparing John for the ministry that he would live out in verse 80. He would be faithful to his calling. Because the Lord would empower him to do so. Which is why it says he grew in the spirit. The Lord was faithfully empowering him to do exactly what it was that he would be called to do. God is faithful. What a song of blessing. A song like this can only be produced in a heart that knows the incredible rescue that God's provided in Jesus. You see, rescues are appreciated at different levels. Based upon the urgency of the need, the skill and effort required, the risk revolved, and the personal cost taken on by the rescuer to save you. Not all rescues are created equal. My mom one time thought when I was like six years old playing t-ball, she thought I was choking. I was not choking. I just had a slight cough. And she heimlicked me near death. And I tell you what, there's nothing worse than thinking you need to be rescued, or someone thinks you need to be rescued, but you don't need to be rescued. You don't really appreciate the help. You're thankful for the thought, but thanks for the broken rib, right? No. Rescues are appreciated on the level and urgency of the need. Let's give you another story. That, that one was a true story. This is a hypothetical. But it could be very true. Say you're driving on the Alcan Highway. Suddenly, 
You thought you would go before the winter season, but you get hit by one of those early blizzards. And they happen. You get hit by an early blizzard. It blows in. The roads are terrible. Whiteout conditions. You've seen no one anywhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. You've got no cell service. All of a sudden, your vehicle slips off the road. You flip. You're trapped. Your arm and leg are broken. The car is totaled, no longer running. You're left suspended upside down, totally unable to free yourself. And the hours tick by. It's getting so cold. The darkness sets in. You've heard a few vehicles pass by. It's only added more to your angst because I don't, you don't think they can see you. You're so cold now. And you begin to think, I'm not going to make it till morning. This is where I'm going to die. You begin to lose consciousness as the blood pools into your head. You can barely think and you can barely keep your eyes open. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that cold darkness, a light pierces the windshield. And you hear a faint voice that says, I'm here to help you. He reaches in. He frees you from the bondage of the seatbelt. And while doing so, he slices up his whole body because of the mangled glass that he has to crawl through to pull you out. His body and his arms are all sliced. He's bleeding. But he thinks no thought of his own wounds. For in his woundedness, you were rescued. With no thought, he then wraps you in a warm blanket. He places you in his vehicle. He drives over 100 miles to the next town that has a, a, a suitable hospital. And he takes you in and he assures that everything that is broken in you gets fully fixed. Your wallet and everything were left back at the side of the crash. You've got no means to repay him or no means to do anything else from that point forward. He says, don't worry about it. And he takes you over to the best lodge in town. And he gets the best room they have and he opens a tab for room service and he says, you can stay here as long as you need until you're able to finally get home. Don't you worry about a thing. I've got you. Now that's a rescue you'll never forget. That's a person that you would want to know more about and desire a deep relationship with. That is a person you would introduce your kids to and you would send them pictures of all the things that you did after because you would say, because you did this for me, this is what I've got to do. Because of your rescue for me, this is what I've gotten to do. You would want to tell everyone about that story and about that person. Because that's a rescue worthy of praise. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Jesus has done for you spiritually. And so much more. Jesus provided the greatest rescue ever needed because he saved us from the most urgent need of all. Dying apart from God. Dying in sin. Which came at the greatest cost of himself. His own life. And in doing so, he showed the greatest love and power ever given at the cross and the resurrection. And yet we so often act like it never happened. We say it happened, we talk about it, but it's nothing more than the memorization and reflection of a news story where we saw someone else getting saved once. 
It's, it really happened, but it isn't real to you. You repeat it just as a true news story that you once heard about a really cool rescue. That's so often how we live in light of the gospel. We don't act like it was real to us. Brothers and sisters, this morning, can you say with Paul that he, Jesus, gave himself for me? He gave himself for me. Can you say that this morning? That I was dead and gone in in my sin, facing nothing but eternal judgment. And he came and rescued me at the cost of his own life, bearing the wrath and penalty that I deserved. By his light, you were carried from the darkness. By his righteousness, you were cloaked in the warmth of God's love. By his power, you were rescued from your enemies. By his wounds, you were healed. By his mercy, you were forgiven. By his resurrection, you were snatched from death. By his provision, you were sustained. By his presence, you were given peace. And by his spirit, you were given power to live for his glory forever. You were rescued from your sin in order to live for his glory. So go do it. Go do it. Go do it like the rescue's real to you. Because it is. But for you who have not yet repented and believed in Jesus, don't sit in the darkness and cold of an impending judgment anymore. The rescuer has come. The horn of salvation has come. Jesus has come. And he offers his, his strong hand to you, O sinner. And I pray that by his spirit, You are able to see it and take hold of it. And at this very moment, know the power and peace of his salvation forever. For in Jesus, God has faithfully come to rescue his people so that they can live lives of unending worship for his glory. And in that truth, we sing with Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the reality of what Christ has done for us. The glorious truths of his amazing rescue. The glorious realities that apart from him, we were dead. We were undone. We had no hope. Helpless and hopeless were we. Until Jesus came. To rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us, to revive us, to renew us, to reform us. Lord, we thank you that you have liberated us from darkness and death to live in the light of your glory. I mean, I pray, Father, this morning that you will fill us with your spirit, that you would empower us to greater faithfulness for you, that we will live in light of the realities that we were not merely saved from something, but for something, namely your glory, and that every aspect of our life would permeate with a desire to make much of you because you came and rescued us. Let it be marked by desire to let everyone know of what you've done in your rescue. To let everyone know of you by a desire to grow in our relationship with you. To tell our children about you. To to make so much of our life a life of living in the fullness of the second chance we've received in Christ. Zechariah didn't waste a second chance. That the moment his mouth was opened, it was directed solely towards you. God, let that be the truth of our lives. 
That in light of the second chance we've been given by your grace, that it would be a life of total, unending, uninterrupted direction towards you and your glory. Oh God, renew us this morning by your Spirit. Restore us. Those who are backsliding, God, help them be rekindled in the light of your love, in the light of your grace, that they may walk in the fullness of your glory. Lord, you are so good. By your tender mercy, you have forgiven us of our sins and you have empowered us to live in light of your glory, filling us with your spirit, writing your law upon our hearts that we might be your people and you are God. Oh, Lord, you are so good. Blessed be your name. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.